again. I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 is where we will be today. Genesis 22. And while you're turning there in Genesis 22, I just want to remind you, uh, if you are a woman, we have a women's retreat coming up. We encourage you to RSVP for that. It'll be October 20th through the 22nd. You can just, if you want more information or you want to RSVP, you can just send an email, info at tccraleigh.org. But we would love for you to sign up and be a part of that. If you are a man, we have a men's breakfast coming up November the 5th, and we would love for you to be a part of that too. You can also RSVP for the men's breakfast, info at tccraleigh.org. Now, Genesis 22, I will also read, I'll read verses 1 to 3, and then I'll also read Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Those will be on the screen for you, but I want to read the scriptures and pray, and we will enjoy God's word together. So let's begin. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And reflecting on this story, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's stop and pray. Father in heaven, we just want to right now acknowledge your presence. You are here, and we need you. We ask that you would do far more than we could ask or imagine. Soften our hearts. Give us listening ears. Give us humility to place ourselves under your word. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give us a longing for you above everything else. We ask, O oh God, we ask that you would remove any rival from our hearts and be squarely at the center of our affection. Father, have your way in this moment. 
Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. May this echo speak clearly to your steadfast love and faithfulness. Specifically, help us to see Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are in a series called the Pentateuch where it all began. Fifteen weeks flooding through the first five books of the Bible. Anybody who has attempted to read the first five books of the Bible would say 15 weeks is woefully insufficient to tackle what we are trying to tackle. I want you to understand kind of what the main aim of this series has been. We have preached through the book of Genesis. We have preached through the book of Exodus in our tenure here at Treasuring Christ Church. But three main things that we are hoping for in running through this series. Number one is you would read your Bible like Jesus did. Which is, he said, basically, I'm on every page. When you read the Old Testament, you will see Jesus. And we want to help you see Jesus when you read the Old Testament. Number two, we want you to understand the biblical storyline. God has a story. A story that begins in the book of Genesis and runs all the way through the book of Revelation. This is God's infallible, perfect word. And we want you to understand this story that he is writing, has written for us. And also, we're hoping that in each sermon, there's, this is the third thing, a thread. What sometimes fancy biblical scholars will call biblical theology. A thread that you see in the beginning of the Bible that runs all the way through the Bible such that when you pull on it, it pulls the whole Bible together. And so now, I want you to ask why. Why? Why do I need to see Jesus? Why do I need to know the storyline? Why do I need to know what these threads are in the Scriptures? Well, I want you to know more than facts. God wants you to know more than facts. You know, the word knowing in the Scriptures is different than many times how we know things. You know, I could say, hey, did you watch that football game? Did you know they won? And you would either say yes or no. And what you mean by that is you knew the facts that this team beat this team. Whoever you were cheering for, I intentionally was vague so we could just keep plugging on and have your heart not pulled in either direction. You know the facts about a thing. I can ask you, did you know that player? And you might say, yes, I saw them catch three touchdown passes or I saw them run this far. But then I would press you and I was saying, no, not do you know about what they did, do you know them? And that's a totally different question, isn't it? Do you know them? Do you know their joys and their pains? 
Do you know their fears? Do you know what keeps them up at night? Do you know what they live for? Not do you know their name and their height and their weight and their title or job or their family numbers. Do you know them? And this is what the craving is in every human heart. When you say, I want to be known, you're not about people just knowing facts about you. There's a lot of people that can recite facts about you. You're talking about, I want the essence, the core of my being to be known. And this is what knowing is in the Scriptures. God is not meant to be talked about as much as He is meant to be talked to. Yes, we talk about the Lord, but He wants to be related to. He wants to be known. The essence of who He is. And so when we run through these things, we want you to know Jesus as a person to relate to Him. This storyline is meant to make you say, this God can be trusted from beginning to end. And when you see these threads, it's meant to make you like look at each and every one of these threads and say, look at how great my God is. It is meant to build up a relationship with God. And this is why Paul can say, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not just like some emotional statement of Paul's. He's genuinely saying, you take every longing of your heart, every one of them, money, relationships, possession, job, house, car, and you put it on a scale and it weighs it down. Paul is saying, when you set knowing as a person relating to Jesus Christ, when you put Him on the other side, He outweighs them all. There is nothing that compares to knowing intimately Christ Jesus. And this is why when David prays in Psalm 73, he says this, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. He's expressing, I want no rival in my heart to rival you. I want nothing to be simultaneous with you. I want nothing to be in the place of you. And so the next words are just words of, Honesty, my flesh and my heart may fail. It's the acknowledgement that we all have. We're imperfect, we're up and down. We place things in the center of our heart over God. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't want anything else here. And so why are we in this series? We're in this series to know that our God is trustworthy and to adore His Son. And so when we run through this many chapters today in Abraham's life, you might be tempted to simply get stuck on facts. Wow, that's interesting. Ooh, this connection is cool. This is great. But may it never stop there.
May the excitement be that our God can be trusted. So, we have a lot to do today. We're going to look at three main things that are said. As we look through Genesis chapter 12 through 22, focusing in on verse 22. Three things. God is purposeful. God is promiser. And God is provider. This is who we know God to be. He is a God of purpose and providence. He is a God who promises. And he is a God who provides. So let's begin with this first one. God is purposeful. And the heart call to that true statement, God has purposes. He is a purposer. The heart call is that we would embrace his providential designs. He's sovereign in all things. May we embrace that and love his good plan. Now, uh, the Bible Project has been a very helpful resource for high-level thinking for me for the Old Testament. And so a lot of what a lot of the sutures and, and connection points, I've gotten some help from them as well as previous study. But when you look at the book of Genesis, they speak in terms of movements, four movements that are found in the book of Genesis. It's Adam to the Tower of Babel. Then from there you have Abraham to Abraham's death. Then the third movement is seen with the subsequent generations of Isaac and Jacob. And then the last movement are Jacob's sons, specifically honing in on Joseph until his death. That covers the entire scroll of Genesis. And those movements are not just arbitrary. There are textual things that tell you in repetition that these are intentional segments of the scroll. Now, <laughs> we're going to spend our time in Genesis 22. Josh finished last week Genesis 12. As I saw that he finished Genesis 12, I realized there's a lot of chapters between chapter 12 and chapter 22. So, we are going to do like an iceberg, okay? Hit the tops and realize there's a truckload underneath, okay? But we're going to enjoy what we see. So, let's make sure that we have the setting. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. You see Adam and Eve walking in fellowship in the garden with God. And yet, they ate of the forbidden fruit and they found themselves naked and ashamed. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 the ruinous poison that affected them and affects all of creation, especially humanity. Sin is destructive. And although they were removed from the garden, their attempts to cover their own nakedness and shame were insufficient, but what we see is God pursuing them. Loving them, killing an innocent animal in order that He might show that He alone is sufficient. He and His love to clothe the naked. To cover shame and guilt. But what we see, Adam and Eve's son, Cain, 
all the way through subsequent generations. They did what was wise in their own eyes so that the entire earth was filled with people who did what was wise in their own eyes. And so God judges the earth and spares only one and his family. That is Noah, who is said to also walk with God, same verb, and was to be found blameless. And what you have when you look at Noah is he's a new Adam. Because we know there was a promise in Genesis chapter 3.15 that God would send a deliverer. A deliverer to right the wrongs, to save God's people, to defeat the serpent. Was Noah that one? He was not. How do we know that? Well, he looked like he was the one because although God judged all of humanity, Noah and his family were saved through the boat. And what we find is that after days of flooding, the boat rests on Mount Ararat. And right as Noah gets out, he builds an altar. And he worships. And God blesses him. Does this sound familiar? And he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It's like hyperlinks that you click back to Adam and Eve. And it's like, is he the one? And what we see right afterwards is Noah builds a garden. He makes a vineyard. And soon after that, we hear echoes of the fall where he takes of the fruit and he gets drunk and is found in nakedness. And right after that nakedness, his son Ham walks in and shows that not just Noah, but subsequent generations have been poisoned as well. Just like Cain, Ham is shown to be defective. And we know that through the line of Ham comes a son named Nimrod. Do not name your child Nimrod. If your name is Nimrod, I'm sorry. Your name means rebel. And Nimrod was the father of Assyria and Babylon. Which we know in Genesis 11 is the city of Babel. And where the tree of life in the center of the garden was the place where you would walk with God and commune with God. What did they put in the center of their city? They put a tower. And where we were supposed to live for the name of God, what did they do in the center? They built a tower for their own name. And so what does God do is He punishes the people and scatters them. And that's where we find Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is one who is going to be leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, leaving Babylon, scattered out, and God says, I will take you to a land of which I will tell you. And what do we read in Genesis chapter 12? The Lord says to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. And Abraham goes, but he takes along not just Sarah, he takes along Lot. He was supposed to leave his country and his kindred. He takes Lot. And what is associated with Lot from here forward is drama and pain and difficulty. And so Abraham, at this point he's Abram. He walks. And in Genesis 13, he's following God and he comes to a tree. A tree of Moray. 
It means the tree of vision. And it's at the tree of Moray where God visits. He shows up and appears to Abraham. And a little bit later, as some have referred, it's almost like a worship tour. He goes to Bethel, to a mountain. And there he is found worshiping the Lord. And you're wondering, is Abraham the one? We've already seen. He took lots. And what we will see is he lies not once but twice. He tries to do what is wise in his own eyes at times, and sometimes he's faithful. He's a mixed bag, isn't he? Sounds like me and you. They came to a point where Lot's property and Abram's property were too much. Started kind of squabbling with each other. So Abram seems to be in an act of faith. Says, Lot, choose wherever you go, want to go and I'll go the other way. Lot chooses the land that looked lush, but it was what we will soon know foreshadowed Sodom and Gomorrah. The place of extreme wickedness once again. Shows that Lot is associated with pain and drama. Abram ends up at the Oaks of Mamre. More, Mamre, that end phrase all signifies this is a place of vision, a place where God can be seen and met with. Abraham builds an altar there. Genesis 14, what you find that a priest named Melchizedek shows up on the scene. You want to talk about an iceberg that needs to be explored. I'm just going to say he is the priest of God Most High. Very significant in the Scriptures. But what's interesting in the story of Abraham, here again, he's still Abram. I keep slipping. He's not Abraham till 17, so keep staying with me. Abram, as another king shows up on the scene, the king of Sodom, he says, hey, give me your people and take the goods for yourself. I'll, I'll, I'll give you goods that you need. And Abram says this, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest I should say, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. So he didn't take what the king of Sodom gave him so that Abram could be able to say, my God is the one who has provided for me. What amazing faith. What great encouragement. That he did not allow his possessions to overtake his God. And then we go to Genesis chapter 15. Where God makes a covenant with Abram. Abram just confesses, I have no children. How in the world will this promise keep going? And he says, just look, son. Look, Abram, just look. Look up in the sky. Do you see the stars? As many as those stars are will be the number of your descendants. And it says miraculously, Abraham just believed. He trusted his words. And what we impact in our series in the book of Romans, we just get a sentence here. And by faith, righteousness was credited to him. It was given to him. He was clothed in righteousness that he was 
right before God by faith alone. What good news. Gospel good news. You are not saved by your goodness. You are saved by faith in the goodness of another. And when you trust in your great God, He credits righteousness, the righteousness of His Son to your account. And then Abram says, well, what about the land? And he says, I will give you this land. This land I will give to you. He says, oh, how do I know that I'll get the land? And so then this amazing story. He says, okay, go out, get some animals, sacrifice them, cut them in, cut them in half. Don't burn them yet. Put them on either side. And now this is how one, one way a covenant was ratified. A covenant was ratified when you would walk through and you say, may it be done to these animals May it be done to me what was done to these animals. If I break this deal, I want it to be done to me what is done to the animals. And so what you would do is you would have one pass through, the other pass through, and may it be done to us both. And we're agreeing that we're going to keep my side and he's going to keep his side and we're in a covenant together. What God does is he says, no, I'm going to fulfill both parts. What you have is a torch passing through the night, fire regularly as a symbol in the Old Testament, of the presence of God, and I would argue the coming of Jesus, and passing through those pieces to say, I will keep both sides. He's saying, God is saying, may it be done to me what has happened to these animals if this is broken in any way, shape, or form. An unconditional covenant. God says, I'm going to keep it. And you want to shout for grace because the next chapter is a train wreck. The next chapter shows Abraham and Sarah waiting for 10 years. They've been waiting for 10 years for this promised son to come. And what do they do? You hear echoes. If you read this chapter, you hear echoes all the way back to the garden. Link after link. They did what was wise in their own eyes. Abram listened to his wife Sarah. Over and over, connection, 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 that they were committing the same sin as Adam and Eve. Because they didn't wait on God. Sarah said, Abram, you should go and have my servant so that we could have a child and this promise could be fulfilled through them. How many of us, tired of waiting, run ahead? Doing what is wise in our own eyes throughout the scriptures shows a life of misery and destruction and has consequences far greater reaching than we could ever imagine. And so when Abraham and Sarah questioned, will he protect us? Will he provide? Is he withholding something good? They created their own son, so to speak. Their own path. So then the covenant is renewed in Genesis 17. Abraham is called and is told he will be the father of many nations. And this is when he becomes, he shifts from Abram to Abraham. Avrahim. Him is plural. It means the father of many nations. Circumcision is given as a sign. Abraham obeys and is faithful until he's not again. And he lies, trying to protect his 
life. And interestingly, where he's supposed to be a blessing to the nations, the nations end up getting cursed because they take in his wife, which they didn't think was his wife, and now they're being cursed rather than Abraham being a blessing. So then you find Abraham praying and asking God to actually bless them rather than curse them. Sin is so destructive. Genesis 21, Isaac is born miraculously. The Lord visits Sarah to one who is as good as dead as the scriptures talk about their age. And Hagar and Ishmael are dismissed because Sarah doesn't want them around. But God still provides for them. And so now they're left with an only son, Isaac. And we are at Genesis 22. Friends, these things are exciting to me because they show historical and literary design. They show that God is writing a story through history and that He has spoken to us in a consistent book where we can hear His words and trust Him. These aren't accidents that run through here. This is a designed book by a designer. Yes, who uses human authors, but writes his story and preserves its perfection so that we might trust his goodness. So when you hear this, I pray your heart is stirred. I pray your mind is, is stirred up and and risen up to be like, this is exciting. The scriptures come alive. I haven't seen some of this. And if this is the tip of the iceberg, I want to know the below of the iceberg. But may all of this be for the knowing of our God. I pray that when you're sad and you're tempted to think God is not there, you would remember these stories. That all throughout history, our God has shown up to be with those in tears. Our God has shown up to be with those, even those who did what was wise in their own eyes. When they turned their hearts to the Lord, He was present to be steadfast love to them. I pray your heart is stirred to trust Him. So, our God is purposeful. May we embrace His providential, that means his control over all things. His good design. But in Genesis 22, we see God is promising. Trusting Him to fulfill His promises. Look at Genesis 22, 1-3. It says this, After these things, God tested Abraham. This word for testing here, this idea it just means placed Abraham in a situation where what was in his heart could be exposed. It would come out. This isn't a temptation to sin. This is a testing to expose what was in Abraham's heart. And God said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son. This phrase three times in this one chapter. Your only son Isaac, whom you love. Because Ishmael was gone. Only Isaac remained. And go to the land of Moriah. Riah is the same ending that is the land of vision. It's this place where God is saying, I'm going to meet with you there. 
I'm going to appear, be seen there. It's important. I'll show you in a second. And offer up your only son. Offer him there as a burnt offering. Now the burnt offering was the foundational offering of all offerings. Multiple offerings, you offered parts of an animal and then the rest was given to the priest to take care of the priest. The burnt offering was meant to be entirely consumed. No part remaining. Now interestingly enough, we don't fully get the burnt offering stuff until Leviticus 9. So what he's doing is he's giving us the insight into what he said to Abram, Abraham. And that is, you're going to take your only son and you will consume him. He will be burnt completely as a sacrifice. What would your response be? And so it says in verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. You want to talk about a long night? The day before you hear your only son is going to be killed. And you've got a decision to make. Will you once again do what is wise in your own eyes? Or will you finally become tired? Tired of crafting your own plan and experiencing all of the consequences, will you just trust him? And a beautiful miracle. Abraham trusted the Lord. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering the tree, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. We've all had these moments of testing. Haven't you? Moments when the question is, who is at the center of your affections? What is at the center of your affections? Moments of decision, crisis, pain, suffering, Moments of stress and fear where God invites you to trust Him, to cling to Him, to follow Him, not to do what is wise in your own eyes. And we have all made mistakes and chosen our own way. But many of you who are here, in your guilt and shame, when you've hit rock bottom, you have seen that it was Jesus who caught you. It was Christ who loved you. It was Him who was sufficient for your darkest moments, you have seen that you can trust Jesus over yourself. And today, He invites you to come. Today, He invites you surrender who you are. I've had these moments in my life. Moments of pretty significant markers of faith. i tell you one of them was when I was dating my wife, Dana. She calls it my finding myself moment. We were dating and I told her that I needed to take a break. And I just was so uneasy in that season. And I just sensed this take a break and trust the Lord. Was she too important to me? I had a hard time doing that. 
I confused the mess out of her because I called her in this break and was like, because hey, yeah, we're friends. Like, I like her, I like her, you know? But God helped me in that time to see that He's better. He's better and He's enough. I remember in college, I had already made a bargain with God at age 17. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but I'll never be a preacher and I'll never be a missionary. I want to talk about wise in your own eyes. I'm an idiot. But in one summer, I'll never forget, in college, this was before the summer, in college, reading my Bible, doing the study, experiencing God, God just struck my heart. And back then, I didn't know what to do, but it was like, okay, I will be a summer missionary and I'll just fill out this application and God, you send me wherever you want me to go. Ended up in Oklahoma in Lake Tenkiller. Now, I know that that's not like overseas Middle East, but for me, it was like it was not Tennessee. And so I'm headed as a missionary to Oklahoma uh, as a, yeah, whatever. So I did that for a summer and it was there for the first time where I preached my first sermon and I was asked to preach. Terrified and horrible sermon. So, but God is still faithful because I enjoyed it. He stirred me. And he set my course. Another moment of testing. Having children and adoption. Could we have children? The story of adoption, would he provide enough so that we could adopt? Will we trust him to provide? Planting this church, especially where? Will we trust him to guide us? What about a church building? Nine locations in the first four years. God, will you provide? Seems like a theme throughout our, our life here at TCC. God, will you provide a place for us to worship? Can we trust Him? Significant crisis in 2018 and 2019. Will I cling to Him? Will I trust Him? Will he be what no one else can? The answer is yes. Yes, he can be trusted. Yes, he is faithful. Yes, he is good. In your darkest moments, he is enough. That was only to be followed by 2020 and 2021 when fear, anger, and canceling became more common than love. And the question is, will we trust him? What about your life, friends? Maybe today is that moment. I don't know what it is. But God just wants you to know He can be trusted. He can be trusted with the biggest of messes. He loves you. And He sent His Son to confirm that love. And so what we have here is a great God who is inviting Abraham to trust his goodness over what he can see and touch. You know something else that was shocking to me? Over sabbatical, the Lord taught me a ton of lessons. Some of them 
I anticipated a kernel of, and then he dove me deeper. But some feel like they came out of left field. And one of them was how God pressed on my heart regarding possessions. You remember Abraham, when the king of Sodom came to him, and said, will you trust basically the king of Sodom to provide for you? And Abraham, Abraham said, no. I want only my God to be glorified, to get the glory for my provisions. Here, Abram's tested with his son. And what began to be revealed in my heart was I can place possessions, I can place people in too high of a priority in my heart. For me, it was reading Luke 14 through 16. I don't know if you remember the passages, but the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, you remember those passages? And what does he say? How many of you, if you lost a sheep, would not leave the 99 and go find the one? And then when you find it, you'll put the sheep on your shoulder and then you'll get back and you're like, throw a party. Look, I found the sheep. We're going to celebrate. And then he says, well, if that wasn't enough, let me tell you about a coin. How many of you, if you lost a coin, would not go and you would turn on a light. So it's probably nighttime. You'd turn on a light rather than sleep. You'd sweep the house. You'd look for the coin because of how precious the coin is. And then he says, Father in heaven celebrates when one lost person repents and comes to Jesus. What's he doing? As much as your heart loves things and would sacrifice for things, he's saying, my heart celebrates for people. Convicted. I probably would not sleep. For things, what about people? It was a press on my heart of how I didn't even see, like, I want God to be my everything. Sometimes, the things that I can touch become my therapy. I began to see, like, I would run to Amazon when I didn't need anything, just to kind of search around. I would run to it for comfort. I noticed things were my go-to. And I noticed in my frugality, which I pride myself in being frugal, those were the areas where I was overly sensitive. I was thinking, why am I so overly protective over my phone, my yard, my computer? my car, my bank account that I manage. Do you hear one common pronoun in there? Thank you. And it was destructive. Things were not outside my heart. Things were inside my heart. And these are the kind of things that Abraham was facing in this moment of testing. Will Jesus be center in my heart? A.W. Tozer says this in his book, the pursuit of God, in a wonderful chapter called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. He says this, There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. 
The pronouns my and mine, they look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our heart have grown down into things. We dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us. A development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God. And the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. God wants to expose and uproot things from our heart, people from our hearts, because when they're misplaced, they're not fully enjoyed. Everything that is given to us is meant to be enjoyed not instead of Him, but through Him. And therefore, our joy is compromised when they rival Him. He wants our full joy. And friends, the lie of the devil is clear. I I know, when I've read the passage on Abraham sacrificing his son, would he do that? I felt the pit in my stomach and fear of, oh no, God is going to take the good things that I love because I have made them too important. What is that? It is once again the devil calling you to question the goodness of God. It's what he does. He lies to you. He lies to you and tells you that the best solution is not to take those rivals to him because he'll be mean or he'll withhold it from you. No, that is a lie. The best thing you could ever do is to take all rivals into the presence of the God who gave them to you in the first place so that you can celebrate the giver and fully enjoy the gift and trust him with the outcome. If this story that we've been reading is worth anything, and it is, we know that the devil questions the goodness of God. Do not buy the lie. And I'm just so thankful that we can take the things that have our hearts and we don't have to be afraid. We can be honest. And we can say, like Abram did, I'm going to trust you. I surrender even that thing, that one, to you. I'm going to trust you. Tozer goes on to say that we have to put away all defenses. He says, first of all, he should put away all defense and make no attempt to excuse himself either in his own eyes or before the Lord, and listen to this phrase, and find comfort in it. Whoever defends himself will have himself for his defense, and he will have no other. But let him come defenseless before the Lord, and he will have for his defender no less than God himself. Let the inquiring Christian trample underfoot every slippery trick of his deceitful heart, 
and insist upon frank, honest, open relations with the Lord. Watch the Lord in His love expose and uproot. And as He puts everything in His proper place, you will experience freedom. Freedom from burden that is too heavy to bear. And you will find refreshment that comes from repentance. From surrender. And you will watch anxiety diminish and you will watch joy fill up. Let's finish the story. What happened? We see these words. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and hear this phrase. This is where the author of Hebrews is interpreting his Bible. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. How does that happen? I'm going to sacrifice my son as a burnt offering, wholly consumed in the fire, but we're going to come back. He's trusting the Lord that He'll raise him from the dead. All through Hebrews is reading his Bible. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood and the burnt, for the burnt offering, and he laid the wood. The literal word is tree. It's the same word used for the tree in the garden. He laid the tree on his son, Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went up together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will see. It's the same word for Moray and Mamre and the mount on which they are and the mount of Moriah. It's the God who sees, the God who shows up, the God who provides. He sees to it. He sees to His Word. God will provide. We're going to meet the Lord. He'll provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abram built the altar, laid the wood in order, and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. This phrase of surrender. He said, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, and there's the phrase again, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold behind him was a ram caught in a thicket. By those horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son, a substitute sacrifice. So Abraham called the name of that place 
The Lord will see to it. My God is a provider. As it is said to this day, now this is a little odd. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is somebody way in the future looking in and commenting on this story because, do you know what the mount of the Lord is here? Mount Moriah is only spoken of in one other time in Chronicles. And it is the mount upon which the temple is built in Jerusalem. You want to know Jesus as the temple, Jesus as the sacrifice, this is the space. This is the place. This is the foreshadowing that we are meant to say Jesus is that substitute sacrifice. And so what was provided was freedom from being possessed for Abraham. He was set free from being possessed by anything else. And what was provided for him was a sacrifice for Abraham's sins. I want to show you the parallels and we are done. Look at this list. The parallels intentionally made in God's God-breathed Scripture. You see the same stories between the story of Jesus and the story of Isaac and Abraham. The father leads his son to be sacrificed. Each son is the one and only son of his father. The son is the descendant of Abraham. The father was willing to sacrifice his son. A resurrection was prophesied. Abraham said, we'll come back to you. And Jesus said, I'm going to rise on the third day. The son has been born with divine intervention. It says, and the Lord came to Sarah, and she conceived and gave birth. And the Lord came to Mary. Jesus was born of a virgin. The son asked questions of the father. The son was submissive to the will of the father. The son carried the wood to the place of sacrifice. The son was bound to the wood or the tree. The sacrifices take place on a mountain. The Lord Himself provided the sacrifice. The sacrifice was a substitute. The sacrifice was a demonstration of the love of God for them. Abundant blessings flow because of the sacrifice. Abundant life, which you would read about as you further go on in Genesis 22 and 23. Abraham was tested. Jesus was tested. And the son ultimately survived the sacrifice just as Jesus did not remain dead. Come on! Thousands of years before, he's writing a story. He's writing a story, and here's what's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to just say, wow, that's pretty cool. You're supposed to say, if he did not spare his only son, but gave him over for us all, he's going to graciously give us everything we need. It's meant to make the heart say, 
He can be trusted with the thing I cling the tightest to so that my anxiety can decrease, my joy can increase, and I can know my God deeper moment by moment by moment, abiding in His love which was proven on Calvary. Friends, He can be trusted. Take your heart wholly to Him and find Him the joy and satisfaction of your soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are the One who is purposing all things, sovereign over everything. Cause us to embrace Your providential plan. Father, You are the One who is the promiser. And when the promises seem to be in jeopardy, help us to wait with faith and not run ahead of You and trust Your promises. Father, You are the great provider. You are the one that can be trusted to provide everything that we need. And Your Word is perfectly, beautifully composed and written and given to us so that we might know You. Father, we need You. May our hearts erupt in worship for You. I want to give you just a few moments to sit and reflect. And to give your heart to respond to the Lord. And then we will take the Lord's Supper together. But in a moment of silence between you and the Lord, confess your sin or confess your faith or confess both, but declare His goodness and His love and His enoughness in every situation in your life. Let's sit in His presence and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.